This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Welcome once more to the program. We're coming to an end of this series of programs on the graduated path to enlightenment. I've been mainly using Geshe Loden's book, The Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, which in turn is based on the works of the great Tibetan master and founder of the Kalukput sect, Jaitsong Kapa. We've been considering the meditations to develop special insight, and last week we started covering the emptiness or lack of inherent existence of phenomena, phenomena being anything that is not a person. We have to be a little careful here, because Buddhism classes anything with consciousness as a person. So animals, birds, fish and so on are all persons. Of course, they are essentially no different from ourselves. They all have minds and can all in due course reach enlightenment. Where other religions say animals don't have souls and so cannot be the object of a saviour, Buddhism makes no such distinction and in terms of reaching the ultimate state, says a lowly snake has the same potential to attain enlightenment as the highest king. Anyway, as Buddhists, we say that we haven't reached enlightenment yet because we mistake reality. We think things have some kind of inherent independent existence, whereas in reality, they don't. So in the last few programs, we've been discovering exactly what this means and how to correct our faulty view. It has to do with how everything is a dependent arising. That is, everything depends on other things for its existence, and nothing has an essential characteristic of its own. There is no permanent inherent self of either people or things. Self here meaning an essential inherent existence separate from parts, causes, conditions and so on. Last week we showed how phenomena are empty of such an existence by considering the fourfold meditation starting with determining the object of negation. The object which we want to prove appears to exist but doesn't. That is the self we have just mentioned. Once we have a clear idea of that object we establish the pervasion or all the possible ways it could exist in relation to its parts, if it did have this independent inherent existence. The pervasion comes down to only two. Either the things exist inherently as one with its parts, or it exists inherently separate from the parts. It can sensibly not exist in any other way. We then looked at the result of its existing as one with its parts, and found some ludicrous consequences proving that it couldn't possibly exist like that. Also, when we looked at it existing inherently separate from its parts, we found more untenable consequences. So, having proved that a thing can inherently exist neither one with its parts nor differently from its parts, we must conclude it does not exist inherently at all. Doing this meditation over and over again with respect to persons and things, we eventually will be convinced that nothing exists as we see it and the mind will start seeing things as they really exist. Once that happens, we stop creating afflictive emotions like attachment, aversion and so on in respect to things and and persons. 
we consequently stop creating karma and so no longer suffer. We will never again see things in the distorted way we do now, and so all our suffering will be over for good. And that is nirvana, the state of peace. Another way of meditating on the lack of inherent existence of persons and phenomena is called the diamond slivers, because it's so powerful. But before we go into that, let's do our usual setting of motivation for participating in the program today. Remembering that motivation makes an action positive or negative, not the substance of the action. The greatest motivation is to gain enlightenment to help not only oneself, but to benefit all others as well, just as the Buddha did. So let's try to set such a motivation, but failing that, motivate at least to gaining your own liberation from cyclic existence. Thank you. The diamond slivers considers the consequences if an object is inherently produced, and in the same way our previous arguments led to untenable consequences, we will see that this does as well. If we consider all the ways an object can in fact be inherently produced, we can only come up with four. From itself, from an inherently existent something else, from both itself and something else, or from nothing at all. Can it be produced inherently in any other way? Now don't rack your brains too much, it will just lead to headache. Let's examine each way in turn and see what it brings up. First of all, something is produced inherently from itself. Some philosophical schools in ancient India, particularly the Samkhyas, held that an effect exists at the time of its cause. For instance, a child exists in the mother before it's born. This does not refer to the fetus in the womb after insemination, but even before that. The child, they say, is there in the mother in an unmanifest state, even when she's a virgin. They say that if the effect is not existent at the time of the cause, nothing could be produced. In the book Fundamentals of the Middle Way, Professor J. Garfield translates and comments on Nagarjuna's text of the same name, which covers the four ways of inherent production we listed above. Garfield says this about this philosophy. A proponent of this view would argue that for a cause to be genuinely the cause of an effect, that effect must exist potentially in that cause. If it does not, then the cause might exist without the effect, in which case the cause would fail to necessitate the effect, in which case it would not be a genuine cause. This is not to say that effects is, exist in full actuality in their causes, but that they have a genuine potential existence when their causes exist. In this case, since the effect is present in the cause, it already has a kind of existence prior to its appearance. And it is the fact of this prior potential existence that accounts for the causal character of the cause. So we can say, on this view, that a thing's prior potential existence is what gives rise to its later, later actual existence. So effects are, in this sense, self-caused. The typical kind of example appealed to in order to defend this model of causation is the seed and sprout relation. The sprout, although only actual after germination, is potential in the seed. Its potentiality is what makes the seed a seed of that sprout. Moreover, on this view, the seed and sprout cannot be distinguished as substantially different. <coughs> 
Intuitively, it makes sense to say that there are two states of the same entity. But the seed is the cause of the sprout. Hence, the proponent of this view concludes the sprout is self-caused. Now, Tsongkhapa's answer to this is that if something is already produced, it is senseless for it to be produced again, since it already has its own entity. So if it has attained that entity in its cause before it appears, it has no need to attain its own entity again. Now the answer to this objection might be that although the sprout, for instance, attained its own entity in the seed, it still needed production to become manifest. But then Tsongkhapa says that if things like sprouts have their own entity but must still be produced, it means they will have to be produced endlessly. Remember, we're talking about inherent existence here. So if something produces itself inherently, it must do so all the time, because self-production is one of its, of its inherent characteristics. Professor Jeffrey Hopkins of the University of Virginia puts the objections to the Sumkir's philosophy like this in his book Meditation on Emptiness. If a manifestation exists from the start, it need not be produced. Also, if a manifestation were reproduced, then its production would be endless. If a manifestation did not exist from the start, one has let fall the position that only what exists formally in the cause is produced. Since the already produced, that which has already achieved its own entity, must be produced again, there would be no opportunity for the production of effects, such as sprouts, because the causes, seeds, would be produced endlessly. There's no point in something's being produced from itself. I hope you get the points. It's all a bit complicated. Professor Hopkins points out that nobody today would say that an effect is already substantially existent in the cause before it becomes manifest. But for the sake of completeness, the argument needs to be countered. Other schools, even some Buddhist schools, hold that phenomena exist inherently and therefore inherently existent causes must produce inherently existent results. In other words, causes are inherently different from their results. Causes are one thing, effects are something quite different. The problem with this is that if causes and results have no relation to each other, anything could cause anything. A cat could be the cause for a toaster, for instance, because the cause is, in its essence, different from the result. Again, remember that the argument is not against causes and effects being different. It is against their being inherently different. So we are not here contradicting dependent arisings, giving rise to other dependent arisings. We are saying that something that is an independent, inherently existing cause cannot give rise to an independent, inherently existing different effect. Because something is independent, it is not influenced by other things, and so in fact could not function or give rise to other effects. Some schools say that things are inherently both self-produced and produced from other, but the faults we have already pointed out for both of these positions would also apply to such an assertion. And finally, the nihilists say that no causal relationships exist and things just arise spontaneously. For instance, the yellow color of a sunflower, the colors of a peacock's feathers, the sharpness of a thorn are all merely in the nature of the thing in which they occur. They have no special cause. 
I think science pretty much refutes this kind of thinking now. But the philosophical argument against this is that if things have no cause, then, as Geshe Loden says, we would be left with total chaos. There would be no point in planting a crop because anything at all could produce the harvest. So if things cannot be produced inherently from themselves, from other, from both self and other, or from no cause, it stands to reason that cannot be inherently produced. Once again, the point here is inherent production. Things are not inherently produced, but they are produced as dependent arisings. In other words, as we have stated in previous programs, they arise dependent on other things, which in themselves are dependent on other things, which are in turn dependent on other things and so on. Things aren't produced from independent causes and are not independent results. The whole of existence is interdependent. Over the last few programs, we have gone through in a brief fashion the kinds of meditations that a person who has reached the point of special insight will undertake. Once we have developed calm abiding, the mind that will stay on an object comfortably for as long as we wish, we meditate on the nature of reality in these ways until we understand experientially how things exist. When we finally achieve that breakthrough, we will have reached the state of peace and our suffering will be over. However, we have to be very careful in meditating on the nature of reality. It is easy to make bad mistakes and find ourselves in difficulties rather than gaining understanding. Geshe Loden cautions us in this way. There are a great number of philosophical interpretations of the nature of reality, most of which are completely incorrect and some of which are partly correct. There are a variety of views as to the meaning of emptiness within the four major Buddhist schools of thought. These become increasingly subtle and progressively closer to the final view as you move from lower to higher schools. It is very important then to gain the correct view, and we are extremely fortunate that this final view of the nature of reality, the coexistence of emptiness and dependent arising, has been set forth so clearly by the Middle Way Consequence School, according to Nagarjuna's six collections of reasonings. It is very useful to be able to distinguish between the viewpoints of emptiness maintained by the different Buddhist schools. Without a thorough study, the danger in approaching the nature of reality is that you may take emptiness to mean non-existence, the extreme of nihilism. Alternately, you may adhere to the extreme of permanence, thinking that if something exists, it necessarily inherently exists. The view of the middle way as presented by Nagarjuna is that persons and other phenomena exist because it's possible to observe and experience happiness, suffering, causes, conditions, subject, object, liberation, enlightenment and so on. The caveat is that persons and phenomena do not exist independent of causes, conditions, effects, continua and parts. If persons and phenomena were to exist independently, there would be no positive nor negative karma and no chance of liberation or enlightenment. Hear more great content like this podcast by becoming a supporter on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89. The brilliance of Nagarjuna's middle way is that he asserts there is nothing that exists inherently, but at the same time everything exists dependently. All other schools fall to either the high or low extreme 
whereas his middle way balances the extremes. He asserts that all phenomena exist and thus eliminates the low extreme of nihilism. By proving that they do not exist inherently, he eliminates the high extreme of permanence. Another wrong approach is to discount phenomena as being mere illusions. The middle way philosophy speaks of things as being like illusions as an illustration pointing to the correct view of emptiness and dependent arising. In the same way, mirages, echoes and dreams are used to guide your analysis of dependent arising. To make the assumption that phenomena are illusions, though, takes you to the faulty position of the nihilists. Although phenomena do not inherently exist, they do exist relatively, conventionally or dependently. The correct viewpoint of the true nature of the phenomena is not easy to acquire. The non-contradictory nature of the ultimate and conventional truths, emptiness and dependent arising, is a very subtle distinction. It is very helpful to receive teachings from a highly qualified spiritual master who can properly guide you to the correct understanding. At first, analytical meditation should be emphasized until a clear understanding is generated and then stabilize this with single-pointed meditation. With continuous practice, you will gain the direct realization of emptiness. If, however, you neglect to study and analyze first, you may end up meditating on the wrong object and merely increase your ignorance. Monks in the great Tibetan monasteries spend at least four years in full-time study on just this subject, so don't expect to pick it up effortlessly, but be prepared to study and analyze the subject again and again. As your mind becomes progressively clearer through training on the stages of the path, you will gain greater and greater insight into the meaning of emptiness. The viewpoints of the various schools should not be neglected. They have very profound views of the nature of phenomena and understanding their views on emptiness is an indirect cause of being able to perceive the highest viewpoint as expounded by Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna's six collections of reasonings explains emptiness perfectly in accord with the Buddha's intention. He said that even the person with a complete realization of emptiness is sometimes hard-pressed to find the right words to explain it properly to others in a way that conveys the unmistaken view set forth by Shakyamuni. And that's what Keshe Loden says. As I intimated earlier, this analysis of reality comes under the development of special insight. You may ask, well, how do I know when I've attained special insight? To answer this question, I'm going to read a section from Geshe Loden's book because he describes the criterion well. He says, Once you've attained calm abiding, a bliss of pliancy will be induced any time that you concentrate single-pointedly because the mind is made completely still and tranquil. However, when you then engage in analytical meditation on the nature of phenomena, because the mind moves, tranquility is disturbed and the experience of blissful pliancy is lessened. Having analyzed the nature of phenomena and established a generic image of emptiness, when you stabilize this with single-pointed concentration, the bliss of mental and physical pliancy is experienced once again. By repeated familiarity with alternating analysis and stabilization, however, you are increasingly able to retain tranquility while engaged in analysis. When you are able to maintain complete, 
complete tranquility while still engaged in analysis and experience a blissful pliancy of body and mind, similar to that ascribed for the attainment of calm abiding, then you have the attainment of special insight. Before attaining the bliss of pliancy, your analytical meditation is a similitude of special insight. When you gain the special bliss of pliancy independence on analysis, however, your analytical meditation becomes the actual attainment of special insight. The pliancy that is induced by calm abiding is not what is referred to here. It is a pliancy similar to that, but induced by analysis rather than stability that determines the attainment of special insight. So basically what he's saying here is that when you attain calm abiding, you will feel very blissful in mind and body because the mind is so still and at peace. Then when you start meditating on the nature of reality with this mind, you will lose some of that bliss because the peace is disturbed. But then you alternate between analytical meditation and just placing the mind peacefully and single-pointedly on the conclusion you get from your analytical meditation. Every time you place the mind on the conclusion, you will get the bliss again due to the one-pointedness. Then when you analyze again, the bliss will decrease. However, as you keep on doing this, the bliss will come even during the analytical meditation. When the bliss is as strong during analysis as it is when your mind is just in a state of calm abiding, you've got special insight. And that mind you use to eventually get a direct understanding of the nature of reality. Even before we actually realize the nature of reality by meditating on emptiness, we will get many benefits. The main one, of course, is that meditating on emptiness cuts the root of cyclic existence and eliminates all the delusions that cause us so many problems. However, Geshe Lodin lists six other benefits. First, he says, we will be able to keep ethics purely, not only in this life, but in very many lives to come. Then we will find the practice of generosity very easy. Generosity is, of course, the cause for wealth in the future. So that will mean we will become wealthy easily and be able to help many others. Our giving of Dharma in particular will increase hugely. The third benefit is that we will attain the highest level of compassion. Understanding emptiness, we see how beings harm themselves and others through grasping and clinging due to their ignorance of reality. Automatically, great compassion and love will arise in us like compassion for someone who continually harms themselves because they are mentally ill. We will also find it easy to practice great patience. Knowing that neither we nor any action we do, nor the object of our action, has any independent inherent existence, we will no longer cling to some as attractive, others as repulsive, and will have a mind that is always tranquil with equanimity. Then we will also realize the dedication of merit we make to living beings, and we will naturally be able to respect others. As the realization of the nature of reality overcomes pride and jealousy, we will automatically not have those feelings for others, and so have no difficulty respecting them. Now in the last few minutes of the program, let's do a meditation on these benefits of meditating on emptiness. Sit comfortably and bring to mind how realizing emptiness cuts the root of cyclic existence. Imagine what it must be like to have a mind that never gets angry, jealous, prideful, lets go of all attachments, and just has pure, unconditional love and compassion for others 
without clinging or desire. Think how easy it will be to practice patience. No matter what others do, your mind will always be peaceful and tranquil because you can see that they're like children who don't understand what they're doing. Having no self-grasping, no pride or jealousy, you'll be able to respect them without reservation.
Okay, please come out of meditation. We've come to the end of today's program and the series of programs on the graduated path to enlightenment. I hope you've enjoyed and gained some benefit from them. If you'd like CDs of them, please contact me through Community Radio Hamilton. Next week, we will start discussing one of the most revered texts in Tibetan Buddhism, Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Until then, goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.